Today's reading comes from Matthew, chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. We'll be reading from the message. Please follow along in your own Bibles or as the text is presented on the screens above. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Good morning, everyone. My name is JD. I'm one of the pastors here at Pine Lake Covenant Church. Welcome to our Sunday morning worship service. Mark isn't here, so you get me. Ha. The cool thing about these seven weeks is that you're actually going to get seven different speakers every single week. We're going to have a different person coming up uh, next week. We have two guest speakers who are a part of that rotation. You're going to hear each of the pastors. We have Ann Snowberger, who's also a hospital chaplain, but she's an ordained covenant minister. She'll be preaching as well. So you're going to get to hear a lot of different voices. I think it's going to be a really, really awesome time. This morning, I have a heavy heart. And... Uh, it would be wrong, I think, of me to kind of jump into the sermon without talking about kind of where we are as a church, where I am personally, and where we are as a denomination. Uh, one of the things that we did before this annual meeting was we had this listening post. And it was really awesome to see, gosh, there must have been 60 of you there, 60 of us there, wrestling, um, challenging, questioning, um, just in it together. And... Uh, the sense that I walked away with in that space as we prayed together was that God was up to something very special here at Pine Lake Covenant Church. What I saw in each of you was a deep concern, both for yourselves and for the kingdom of God, but for all the people outside of our doors who aren't quite here yet. I saw a concern for your family members and friends. I saw a concern for those who might be affected um, by the decision however it went. And now, this morning, um, with where we are, with the decision and all that's happened, I'm I'm hurting. And I'm hurting um, for those who are directly affected by this decision. Some of you who have friends and kids and grandkids and people you know in your circles of influence who won't feel like they're welcome here anymore. Perhaps they doubt whether this is a place for them and whether God truly loves them. I'm hurting for those who are leaving or questioning leaving, um, whether this is a church or a denomination that they can be affiliated with. Uh, if you haven't known, we're, we're on national press. CNN, New York Times, a lot of local networks. And uh, it doesn't make it look like that we have a loving posture towards the LGBTQIA community. I can tell you for a fact that within our denominations and within the ministerium of pastors, um, that's the furthest thing from the truth. There are many of us who want to extend love and care. Um, and so I'm hurting because some of those people are leaving. There's already been waves of pastors who say, I can't out of good conscience stay here and minister here. And then there's others who are saying, stay because we need your voice. We need your light to help us. Um, navigate this decision because we're still a denomination that wants to be better together. And so I'm hurting for those who are even among us here in this church who are like, I don't know. 
if I want anything to do with the ECC or Pine Lake Covenant Church anymore, or whether I can bring my grandkids here or my kids here or my friends here. Would they be welcome if we invite them? I'm personally lamenting that we couldn't do more and be more than where we are and what we currently are. And for that to you, I sincerely apologize. We can be better. We will be better. And we need your help. We need every single person in this room to define what it means for us to love every single person that comes through those doors. Personally, I'm committed to walking with each of you wherever you are because you're a part of us and we're in this together. If that means that you're a person who's part of that community and you haven't told anybody and you're doubting whether this church is safe for you, whether Mark or Sharon or Nancy or any of us, whether we want you here, we want you here. You're a part of us. I know it may not feel that way, but we love you. And we're going to hold this space for you as long as you allow us to. Now, for some of you who are doubting whether your friends or your family members are invited here or whether we're going to give up this conversation, my promise to you is that we're going to continue. We planned that last listening post, uh, the one that we just talked about that's coming up, um, even before we knew what was going to happen because we knew that it was actually the beginning of something. Now, for some people, there's probably some relief. You, know, you might be like, man, I'm kind of happy that we, we did what we did. And that's, that's good. I'm glad you're here too. I love you. You're my brother or sister. And I stand with you in that. Um, but there might be others of you who are realizing, you know, this is just the beginning of many hard moments and many hard questions. We as a church are going to always be a space for hard questions. We're going to always create that intentionality where we challenge each other where we say, what does it mean to be people of the word and to love our neighbor? Which both come from the Bible. People who have to be holy and resist sin, but love our neighbor. There's lots of questions on that theologically, biblically. We can get into the interpretation of the words and text, but regardless of all that, right now is a moment in time where uh, we can get distracted the most important thing that I want you to hear this morning is that this space is here for you. We're going to continue walking together. Uh, there might be some of you who are just like, I'm new to the church, man. I'm new to the covenant and I don't, I don't know. And welcome to a really messy place. <laughs> it's always been messy. Uh, the history of God's people has never been clean ever since we were out of Eden. See, that's what sin does. It doesn't just break us, but it breaks the spaces in between us. And we have an enemy who wants to attack those spaces. So today, what I'm asking all of you to consider and do, regardless of where you are theologically, is to make a commitment to each other, to the Word of God, and to loving people and the world like Jesus would. I believe that's what we're called to do. I believe that's what I'm called to do. And uh, I just want you all to know I'm with you. Cool? Cool. All right. 
We're starting a new sermon series called Rhythms. We're going to jump into this, and it might seem disconnected, but I promise it's somewhat connected, okay? Um, this series is basically a series about spiritual practices for rest and renewal. As we started looking towards the summer, we asked the question, what would it mean for us to take summer and not just like crash by the pool or crash in the hot tub, but to actually say, what if we could partner with God for rest and renewal? But I know, some of you guys are like, well, doesn't summer already do that? Okay, listen, let me tell you why we need the series, okay? Uh, Easter Sunday was the first Sunday that we had service in this beautiful space. It was also our 30-year anniversary. I don't know if you guys knew that. 30 years to Pine Lake Covenant Church. Woo! Yeah. It's, it's starting to, you know, 30 is when you start going down, right? <laughs> like the mid, midlife. I'm 36, so <laughs> maybe that's just me. Because um, I know it's me because all of you guys are like, J.D., you're so young, you're so young. Yeah, I know, I know. I'm young, but I have a cane this morning and a bum knee. So, you know, what can I say? Here's why we need this series, okay? The sanctuary renovation was so awesome, and I was a big part of it. Um, Nikki Boffin was a big part of it. There were a lot of people. Uh, For me personally, it was like the investment of a year and a half of my life and working with different groups here at church, and and, and it was great, right? Getting to mobilize and have the vision to initiate things, to execute things, to do it all. Fantastic. But what you don't know is that it nearly killed me. It almost took my life. And I'm not proud of that, okay? And I'm not looking for pity. You know, I'm not saying, like, shame on you. Nothing like that. I'm just sharing a story, okay? Hear it. Uh, What happened was that a few weeks after Easter, I started experiencing this, like, weakness in my chest. And it kind of, like, felt like a weakness, and then it kind of radiated. And then I was, like, really tired, so I slept, like, the whole day and called in sick. I let my team know, and they were like, hey, hey, you 36-year-old, you need to go to the hospital right now. Don't mess with chest pain. And I was like, guys, I'm young. You tell me I'm young. It's okay. I don't need to go anywhere. And they were like, you should go. And I didn't go. Okay, I'm stubborn. I didn't go. I went back to work on Tuesday, thought things were fine. It happened again Wednesday morning. Weakness in my chest. Extreme fatigue. And so then I was like, okay, I should go. You know, I can't be dealing with this. So I went to urgent care, and then they took a EKG, and they're like, your EKG is normal, but it's somewhat a little unnormal. Like, we can't really tell here. And I found myself in the ER for five hours. It was crazy, right? I got dragged in. There were like seven nurses. And I'm trying to like make light of the situation because I don't want to die. And all of these nurses are so serious, okay? They're like, oh, do you feel this? Do you feel this? Do you feel-? I'm like, uh, I don't know. I, I have feelings. Yes, I'm happy. And they're like sticking me with needles. Like, it was like the strangest situation, right? And there were seven of them, and they're wiring me up, and they did like every single test possible, and they were basically like, okay, you're a middle-aged guy. You look like you're healthy, but you're kind of not healthy. We can't really tell. We just need to see if you're dying or not. And after every single test possible, right? And it happened while I was there, this chest weakness thing. And I was, I was miserable, like in pain, like just like horrible. After, after like an uh, x-ray and a cardiogram and an EKG and a CT scan and blood work and heart enzymes, after all that, the doctor comes back in and, and she, she says, well, virtually you're the perfect patient. We, um, we know for a fact you're not dying, you don't have a stroke, and you're not, you don't have a blood clot, um, but we have no idea what's going on with you. But you're alive! And I was like, well, I'm still weak, right? I'm like, 
I mean, can you guys give me something for like the pain or discomfort? They're like, well, you're still alive, so. And I mean that. And I, you know, I guess they assessed that like I was out of the big things and I was just a little sleepy and I needed some rest. And so um, <laughs> I walked out of the ER feeling no better after five hours, but with the assurance that I wasn't dying, okay? And on my sheet, you know, it says like reasons for the $8,000 bill. Insurance covered a lot of it, okay, so don't freak out. But the ER visit was like 8000 something. Was stress, fatigue. Now, I know that it's like, wow, that, that happened to you, JD? That never happens to me. Well, maybe not quite yet. I was in a unique situation, right, where there was a lot of things happening. But we know this. We know this instinctively, that our pace of life, when unchecked, without rest, can lead to death in certain areas. That could be spiritual death, or physical death, or emotional death, or even social death. Here in the plateau, right, we work and work and work and work and work. We go and go and go and go and go. And then our kids, same thing. Work and work and work and work and work. Go and go and go and go and go. It's almost like if you don't do that, you're like the odd one. Oh, wait, your kids aren't in three sports? That's a little strange. I mean, do you think that might, like, stunt their development or develop their self-esteem to be lower? Maybe you should do four sports, you know? Oh, oh, you're only working 45 hours this week? Pfft, I got 55 in, and I'm st- I still look great, right? I look good. Pfft. Oh, you're retired? Oh, no, no. Oh, oh, you're retired, but you're busier than me. Oh, yes, yes, I am retired, and I am busier than you. I've never seen retired people want to be so busy. But I have retired people who literally are like, I'm like, hey, now you're retired, I want to hang out with you, right? I'm not going to name who they are. They're people in this church, right? And they're like, ah, oh, I don't have time. I've got to get back to you in three weeks. Okay. You're retired. What does that mean? We're busy. Chronically busy. Events in our life can trigger our need for renewal. Unforeseen disasters or tragedies or devastating news or medical diagnosis or family situations or things that happened this weekend, right? Things that affect us on a profound level where we feel a great deal of pain and heartache. And it's not enough. Um to just say, I can take it. Because we have limits. And when our limits are tested beyond a point, our bodies, our spirits, our souls start to break. Now the good news this morning is that our lives do not have to be this way. Jesus offers a beautiful invitation in this morning's passage. And this is what he says, okay? This is from the message. I want you to hear this again. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion, come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Now this is so beautiful and inviting, but how do we actually live this out? Well, we're going to be answering that question over the next seven weeks, looking at different practices, and today we're going to explore the practice of confession. Everyone say confession. All right, now here's the flow, okay? Mark's not here, but I'm using his three-point idea sermon thingy. Here's the flow, all right? Rhythm, confession, examine. Say that with me. Rhythm, confession, examine. 
All right? These are the three words I want you to know. These are the three words that like, I want you to really walk away with. So let's talk about rhythm. Let's talk about music. Now, when you learn music, you learn about notes. Um, you learn about what they mean. You learn about rests. Uh, you learn about all of those things. Could you show us that sheet music slide, David? And so when I learned music back in sixth grade, I do know music, by the way. I know that there was a question about that at one point in my history. You guys are laughing because you know what I'm talking about. We learned notation. Quarter notes are different from half notes, different from 18th notes, 16th notes, 32nd notes. I was a percussionist, and so rhythm was really important. Right? We also learned about rests. Same, similar thing. Quarter rest, eighth rest, 16th rest, 32nd rest. Now the thing about certain notes, like whole notes and half notes and rests, they do this thing within music where they create space. How many of you have ever heard music that didn't have any space? Chad's raising his hand, maybe. Have you heard music that has no space at all? No, why? Because it's not music, right? How many of you have ever been to like an orchestra concert? Yeah, or like, you know, I used to go to Boston, BSO, Boston Symphony Orchestra. Sarah and I would go and we'd have date night there and stuff. And you know when the orchestra's like warming up and all the instruments are just going all crazy and there's like literally a cacophony of sound with no break? That is what music is like without rests and space. It's utter chaos. Total chaos. Music without rests is chaos. And rests represent space. Lives without space are also chaos. The best lives have spaces in them. We need to have spaces in our life, a certain rhythm. The spaces of rests and whole notes in music and in life give us a rhythm. In Christian spirituality, these spaces are created by these things that we call practices. Everyone say practices. Now, some people will use the word disciplines, but disciplines are a little harsh. They go back to a time where um, this idea of ascesis, or this very strict form of spiritual training, was like a really popular thing to do in the church. Rather than disciplines, I want you to focus on the word practices. Now, the definition for practice that I want to offer to you is that a practice is simply an intentional invitation to encounter God and experience transformation. All right, it's an intentional invitation to encounter. And in, and in that encounter with God to experience transformation. Now, it's not something we just do just because we're Christian. Right? I know some people who are like, because I'm a Christian, I read the Bible. Because I'm a Christian, I pray. Because I'm a Christian, I have to do this. Right? If you were to sign up to be a believer and you walk into our church, we don't give you a card that says, here are the seven things you have to do to be a good follower of Jesus. Do, wait, do we do that? <laughs> we don't, right? Okay, thank you. Thank you. I just, I don't know, maybe there is a seven-step card or something. We don't do that. The idea of a practice is not that we're fulfilling this righteous scorecard. The idea of a practice is that we're creating space in our life to encounter God. And by encountering God, we're experiencing transformation. It's an intentional invitation. So when you pray, or when you stop to read scripture, or when you stop to breathe, or when you stop to remember that you're grateful, you're just creating space in your life to encounter God in that moment, 
to invite the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to transform you. Does that make sense? Okay. So there's rhythm, confession, and examine. So let's talk about confession. Now, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? You're supposed to say, I am. (laughs) Hey, someone says, no, I'm not. No, I'm not, right? Yeah. You guys know this, right? Mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? You know, it's a fairy tale story. Okay, good, good. That's not a real question I was asking you. I don't want you to be like, that pastor was really vain. He wanted us to tell him he was the fairest in the land. Weird. Um, Mirrors are places where we see ourselves. Places where we encounter truth. Now, in 10th grade, I had an English teacher named Mr. Madison who taught us English, but he also taught us the basics of filmmaking. Now, I'm going to give you a little trick. Because when he started this course, he said... I'm going to teach you things and you'll never be able to watch a show the same way because you'll already know the ending 15 minutes in. Thank you. So he would tell us, these are what directors do to foreshadow certain events, right? And one of the things is that mirrors are used to reveal the truth about a character. Pay attention to when you watch your next show. If they're in front of a reflective surface or if there's a mirror in the scene with them, it means that they're telling the truth, how they really feel. You know, or maybe like there's something about them that's been hidden to everyone else, but then they're in front of that mirror and they're like, I am Batman. You know, there's something there. Okay? Mirrors are places of truth. Now, confessions are connected to truth in Christian spirituality, but not like you're thinking, okay? Because confessions get such a bad reputation in Christian thought. Oftentimes, it's associated with saying something that we did wrong. Right? So in the practice of confession, right, I would go to Pastor Mark, and Pastor Mark, if he was a confessor, he would say, J.D., what are your sins? And I would say, I ate two donuts. I, la, 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 la. You, you guys wanted to hear my sins. <laughs> You're so funny. Oh, right? That's what happens in the practice of confession. In the Catholic Church, it's still celebrated today. Right? It's associated with this. So we're, 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 we're saying something we did wrong, right? And the solution to that is you say a few prayers, a few Hail Marys, you do a couple of things, and then you're in the good, all right? right? And so we're either talking about something that we do wrong, and then we have a prescription to make it right, or it's saying something that's wrong with us. Right? We hear this in the church a lot. I'm a sinner saved by grace. I'm a sinner. I'm just a sinner, you know? Down south, I heard, you know, he's a good for nothing. A good for nothing. I'm a horrible person, Now, why? This isn't helpful. And the reason it's not helpful is because it leads us to a cycle of shame. We get stuck. If if you say that you're a sinner for the rest of your life, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you say that you're good for nothing for the rest of your life, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It leads you to a cycle of shame. Now, God doesn't want us to live in shame. He says in Galatians 5.1, right? Paul writes this. That Christ came to set us free. It's for freedom that we were supposed to live, not for shame. So how do we get unstuck in our cycles of shame, right? And now it has to do with how you see the gospel, the good news. So here's a question. What's the gospel of Jesus? Any brave soul want to take a guess? Okay, Christ died, rose again to save us from our sin and then we have eternal life wrong I love one another yeah that's when he summarizes commandments wrong 
What is that? He's brought the kingdom. Now watch this. It's so funny. Jesus did say John 3.16. He did say love your neighbor, love, you know, which we're wrestling with, right? All of that. He did say that. But, but in Matthew 3, right, once he goes through his baptism and after the temptation in the desert and when Jesus starts preaching in Matthew 4, when he says, this is the good news that I have come to bring, listen to this. This is from Matthew 4. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. All right, so John is arrested and Jesus is starting to start his ministry. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 9 or 7, depending on how you look at the Hebrew break, might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This was his good news. Now you're like, what does that mean that the kingdom of heaven is at hand? A direct translation of that would be the kingdom of God is here. It's available for you right now. Not just when you die. It's available for you right now while you're living in your relationships. Wrestling in your workplaces. Wrestling in your conviction. The kingdom of God is here and available. You can live this kingdom life now through me. Not just one day when you're off in paradise. See, if the gospel is just the way to get to heaven, you're going to be managing sin for your whole life. You're going to be stuck, right? And you're going to say things like, oh, I can't wait for Jesus to come back because the world is horrible and we're a bunch of good-for-nothings. But Jesus didn't want us to live in shame. There's no light in living that kind of life. How can we be a light on a hill when we're stuck in those cycles? You see, if the gospel is just a way to get to heaven, you're going to be managing sin. You're going to be stuck in that cycle. But if the gospel is that the kingdom of God is here, which means that you can live a different kind of life right now through Jesus Christ, a more truer or more richer, more powerful, a with God life here on earth, it's available to you and to me. Jesus showed up and that was his good news. Not later. Now. If the metaphor in our minds is that the church is a hospital, right? We're only going to come when we get sick. We're only going to come if we need to get better. And what's going to look like is it's going to look like we're barely surviving. But what if the church is actually like a PT clinic or like a gym where we're trying to get stronger? trying to get to thriving, living in that kingdom life. We access this kingdom of God through Jesus, through spaces, through practices, through encounters with him that lead to transformation. And in this view, I'm going to argue that the role of confession changes. Confession no longer is about managing my sin. Confession, I want to propose to you, is all about seeing the truth. The Greek word for sin is hamartia, which means to... Who knows? Miss the mark. Right? The analogy is that if I had a bow and arrow, which I don't, I, I would probably shoot myself or one of us. That'd be bad. But if I were to shoot an arrow and I was trying to aim for the family sign and it went off over there to that window, that's sin. I tried to go in that direction, but I missed the mark. 
right? Sin says that there is something broken about my vision or my mechanics that will always make me miss the mark. That's what happened in Genesis 3. Do you guys get that? So if that is what sin is in the Greek word and understanding of hamartia, I want to say that confession is about fixing our eyesight. Fixing the mechanics of our form and function. Confession isn't about admitting our wrongs or saying what's wrong with us. Confession is about seeing clearly. Seeing the truth of who we are and who God is. And when we see truth, we become free. So confession is the key to living in freedom. Do you see how paradoxical that is? We're so afraid to confess. To be honest with ourselves or with another person. Yet Jesus says, the gospel says, that it's a spiritual mirror that allows us to see the truth. It's the key to living in freedom. Now, I know, some of you guys are like, I don't know, you're saying some weird things right now. All right, hang with me. You guys still with me? Thank you. All right, so how do we do this? Rhythm, confession, examine, right? Um, Let's look at those three words. And uh, let's talk about examine. Can you go to the next slide, David? All right, say these three words with me one more time. Rhythm, confession, examine. All right, next slide. Now, the examine is a practice that comes from Ignatian spirituality. I'm going to offer you this as a practical window, a practical rest space in your life to practice confession. Okay? Uh, If you don't know who that is, that is St. Ignatius of Loyola. It's a picture of an icon. Okay? Um, That's who he is. Ignatius lived from 1491 to 1556. He was a holy man, a serious lover and follower of Jesus. He was the founder of the Society of Jesus, also known today as the Jesuits. And he gave us some of the best spiritual practices that the church has ever known. Ignatian spirituality um, is built upon this idea that God speaks to us through our emotions, through our mind, and particularly through our imaginations. So hearing from God uses those faculties. Right? So when we're doing Ignatian meditation and we're like, I want you to hear the words of this passage, and what do you imagine? What do you see Jesus doing? Right? That's kind of what Ignatian was like. Now, he created this thing called the examine, which is a daily thing. And, and those who practice Ignatian spirituality actually do it twice a day. I'm not going to ask you to do it twice a day. I'm just going to ask you to try it a few times this week. Okay? I do it every day. This daily examine is something that has changed my life. And I want us to look at it. So let's go to the next slide. This is the moment where you can take out your phones and take a picture of me, the fairest person of all. No, just kidding. I'm just kidding. All right? This would be appropriate. This examine, uh, this is a, there's a lot of different versions of the examine. Some of the language can get complicated. And this guy, Jim Manny, is one of the greatest teachers on Ignatian spirituality. He wrote a book called The Simple Life-Changing Prayer. And this was his language for what examine looks like. Ask God for light. Give thanks. Review the day. Face your shortcomings. Look toward the day to come. Now, uh, there's a couple of things about this that we have to kind of outline. The first thing is that you can do this at night or in the morning. My examine takes about 15 to 25 minutes. 
Some people I know do it in like five to ten minutes. Very, very short. It's really simple. How many of you do something every day that's like 25 minutes long? I don't know, like how many of you watch an episode of TV? Okay. Most episodes are 40 minutes if you don't count the commercials, right? This is shorter than that. You could, you could put pause on Netflix, chill out, do your examine. So here's how it works for me. It takes about 15 to 25 minutes, and I've modified it. The beauty of this is that these five steps can be like personalized to what works for you. So I'm going to share a bit about how I do my examine, okay? So ask God for light. What I do when I ask God for light is that I enter into a prayerful space. If my practice is not about me doing something, but it's about inviting God to encounter him, I ask God, Holy Spirit, Father, Son, Jesus, come here, be with me. Help me to see my day as you see it. Help me to notice things. And it's just simple as that. Invitation. And then I give thanks for my day by reviewing my day backwards. From that point in time, whenever it is, from 11 p.m. or 10 or 12 to dinner time, I review the things that I notice. And I write them all down. Elise said she loves me. Sarah made this awesome dinner. Mark Neely sent me a really funny meme. Nancy is out in her yard. That's cool. Whatever. I review my day, and I just write these things down. I make a list. From that point until dinner, then from dinner to lunch, then from lunch to breakfast, I do a reverse review. I found that thinking of the whole day is too overwhelming. So I just take a moment. Once I write those things down, it's a way of giving thanks, it's a way of saying grateful, then I review the day. I go back through each one of those and I explore the emotions connected to each event. When Elise said, I love you, I was so happy. When Mark Neely sent me that meme, I couldn't stop laughing. When I saw Nancy playing, I was sad because she didn't invite me to her barbecue. Not true. Totally not true. (laughs) Totally not true. Nancy's really hospitable. She's an awesome neighbor. But you get what I'm saying? Sarah and I had a fight. How did I feel? And I write down these emotions. Right? I write the full gamut. And then I write a summary statement that says, today I felt, and then I write down all of those words. And I'm able to see kind of from the evening to the morning what my emotions were like and what, what that was like. And then I face my shortcomings. I write, today I repent of... And I write the things I need to own. I repent of judgment. I repent of giving an emotional response that wasn't something I was happy with. Um, I repent of um, you know, assuming things. And then sometimes I'll say, today I let go of the need to be right. I'll let go of this. Or I'll say, today I take hold of this. Um, I'll write kind of a one sentence summary of my day and then these two sentences are really important I say this is the truth about me and then I write a few words this is the truth about God and I write a few words and whenever I do this every single day it's remarkable what happens because oftentimes, I don't know about you but I get stuck on so many negative things like this week was a hard week with all that was going on you know And sometimes, like, when I go to sleep, all I can think about is a negative thing. And when I review my day, I realize, actually, 
in the gamut of my emotions, I had 20 good emotions and maybe three bad ones. Do you see what I'm saying? We kind of lose perspective. We're drawn for some reason to misery. Even in our own self. We're drawn to destruction. You notice that? You ever, have you ever been online when there's like, you know, like clip of an accident or clip of this dangerous thing? You know, most humans, research shows that when they see that, they want to watch it rather than not watch it. Violent movies, violent video games. You, you ever thought about this? For some reason, we're drawn to all of this negative energy. Don't know why. We can look at it later. When you do the exam, it allows you to see the truth of your life. Some of it, in certain seasons of your life, yes, are very, very dark. But often, even in our darkest moments, what we can find is that there is light. The last step of the exam that I do is I look forward to the day to come. So I write, tomorrow I look forward to eating breakfast with Sarah, talking to Pastor Sharon about spiritual formation, hanging out with Mark Meredith, and just being with Mark Meredith. La, 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 la. The exam helps me to live in freedom because every day I face my true self and I face the true God. Right? When I hear lies all the time about who I am and who I'm not, when I make lies to myself thinking that I'm better or worse, the exam makes me take off the mask. When I hear lies about my identity in culture or in society or from the past, the exam makes me see that I'm loved and cared for a lot. My wife makes me this awesome like breakfast casserole and I'm like, yes, through that I experience deep love. We hear lies about where God is and where he isn't. The exam helps me to see that God shows up in the smallest of places. And when I hear lies about what God thinks of me or what I'm worth, the exam reveals God's truth to me. The exam as a practice of confession lets me live clearly a life of freedom. So in closing, the three words again. Rhythm, confession, examine. The best lives have spaces in them. They have a sense of rhythm. Spaces in Christian spirituality come through practices, and practices are intentional invitations for encounter. And one of the most important spaces that I want to give to you this week is confession. Confession is not about admitting that you're wrong or that you're a horrible person, but it's seeing the truth of who you are and who God is. And Jesus tells us that the truth sets us free. So confession is actually the key to freedom. And one way that I want you to try living in this this week is by the practice of examine. Take these five steps, and maybe tonight or in the morning, just ask God to come with you and give you light Use a form that works for you. For some of you, it might be pictures, it might be poetry, it might be one-word descriptions. Whatever helps. The examine helps us see who we are, where we are, who God is, and where God is. It destroys lies and helps us live and walk in freedom. Now, where are you this morning? Worship team, you guys can come up. Maybe you're stuck in the cycle of shame. Maybe you're wiped from the pace of life. Maybe you're devastated by news in your own life or maybe you're disheartened by what's happening in our denomination in our churches hear this beautiful invitation of Jesus again are you tired worn out burned out on religion come to me 
get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Church, what would it look like for you and for us to be a community of people who saw clearly the truth of who we are and who God is? What would it look like to be free? Not tied down by shame or fear or lies, but living in freedom. Freedom that gives power to love, to lead, to learn, to live, to hold tensions in the midst of difficult times, to love people in the midst of questions, to walk with those who need life. How would it change you to live this way? How would it change your family, your friends, your school, your workplace, your community, our city? Rhythm, confession, examine. The world is longing to see people who are free. Let's show them what the freedom of Christ looks like. Pray with me. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our hearts are heavy and light, confused and clear. We are all over the place. Yet, even in the midst of that, you know exactly where we are. I thank you that you give us ways of seeing the truth. The truth is that you're greater than anything that happens, that your love is more profound, your hope is more vast. And with all that we face as individuals, as a church, as a denomination, see the truth. So we confess this morning to you. Show us the truth of who we are. Show us the truth of who you are. Help us not to be burdened by lies that seek to destroy the spaces between us. But Lord, deliver us. Deliver us. Deliver us into freedom. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit we pray. Amen.